welcome. This is Bleacher Blums, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now here's David Tuttle and Astros master of banter, Blummer. Welcome in to another episode of Bleacher Blums, and I cannot tell you how excited I am for this episode because it is my podcast, Jeff Blum, 14-year veteran in Major League Baseball and current color analyst for the Houston Astros, and it is also my co-host's podcast, also David Tuttle, who played nine years in the minor leagues, was on Team USA, a college All-American, and just phenomenal human being. But we have the opportunities, and we're starting to do this a little bit more, month, at least once a month, we're going to try and have a special guest on, and this is a very special one. Uh, Not just in the sense that you're going to gain a ton of valuable information, but this is a guy who's been in baseball and understands the Latin community as far as how they're developed and how they get to the big leagues. But it is Labor Day, and we have opted to give you the opportunity to listen to Vic Rojas. Uh, Tuttle, it was a lot of fun to have Vic on. Just a couple of, we're going to preview the interview, I think, a little bit right here before we get into it because it's, it's rather extensive, but it's deep. Uh, this is your first opportunity meeting a guy like Vic Rojas, who whose father, Cookie Rojas, was in the major leagues, managed, coached. Uh, Vic Rojas was play-by-play, did color commentary, and is now president of the Frisco Rough Riders minor league team. But uh, what was your impression of Vic Rojas when uh, you were actually able to get on and talk to him, Tuttle? Yeah, he's a, a fantastic guy with a lot of uh, great experience. I think the listeners are going to really enjoy the fact that... Um, you know, he brings some things to the table maybe that we haven't discussed before. But, you know, more importantly, I thought um, we pretend, you and I, to have, you know, we have great banter on this podcast, but to be at odds and typically we're aligned in what we're thinking. And he's just another guy that kind of came up through the system the way we did around the same time that we did. And I was impressed to see that that he has some of the same philosophies that we do when you're looking at uh, running a successful baseball organization or, you know, raising kids and being successful in that realm and that arena and, you know, having a good family. So, uh, you know, again, just another guy that kind of fits into our mold, but, uh, but a fantastic guy with a wealth of experience. And, uh, I was, you know, enlightened and intrigued and I was almost as, uh, hopefully as curious as the listeners will be to, to hear what he has to say. Yep. He, he is of Cuban descent. So we got into the Cuban aspect, uh, even defections, uh, you know, for these, some of these players getting in. So it's really interesting to get a behind the scenes look at that. You're going to hear names that uh, maybe you've heard in the past and maybe some names that you hadn't, but uh, he is a wealth of knowledge, a ton of fun to talk to. And of course, uh, Tuttle asks great questions throughout the course of this podcast and interview. And if you want to get to either of us, you can reach us on Twitter at Blummer27 myself or at Real David Tuttle. And of course, the Bleacher Blums has its own social media page on Instagram and on Twitter at Bleacher Blums. And of course, our YouTube channel, Bleacher Blums, is out there too, because you're going to see snippets of this interview. Uh, on our on our YouTube channel, we like to call them short hops, just quick quick snippets of our uh, podcast. You can go in there and get some quick shots before you go on there and download the entire podcast. Make sure you sub- subscribe, rate, review. Uh, Tuttle, do you, do you want to introduce this uh, this interview? Um, I'm happy when you do it. I was just going to say, try not to find us out there, right? We're on every platform. We have a, our own social media individually. Like we idea. have social media. It's like, hey, try not to find us. If there's a place that you can't find the Bleacher Blums podcast or either Blummer or myself, then uh, you let us know because we'll, we'll find that corner and uh, we'll make sure that we're represented there. So here we go. We're going to get right into it. Here is the interview with Bleacher Blums and Vic Rojas. 
All right. It is my great pleasure on the Bleacher Blums podcast to welcome a very good friend and also a guy who has been immersed in the game of baseball for a very long time. And just to get, try, try to give a brief background, his name is Victor Rojas. We call him Vic up in the booth. I got a chance to meet him as he was doing play-by-play for the Los, man, it kills me when I got to say Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, but I remember them as a California Angels as a kid growing up. But Vic Rojas spent 11 years behind the mic with the uh, Angels. He also spent time with the Diamondbacks and Miami Marlins, but uh, his father is Cookie Rojas, played in the major leagues for a while. Vic has his own experience inside baseball. Just an all-around truly great human who actually decided to step away from the mic and go and and run a ball club. He is now the president of the Frisco Rough Riders. But real quick, I just want to welcome in Vic Rojas. It's been a while since we've talked. I, I, I We don't travel, and that might be part of the reason why you stepped away. But I miss you greatly, and thank you for coming on, Vic. How have you been, man? I'm doing all right, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, you guys having to scrape the bottom of the barrel to, to find a guest and and to have <laughs> me on. And that introduction as far as all-around great human, I think I'm going to cut and paste that and put that on my resume and just leave the rest of it blank. <laughs> I just, you know, my name, all-around great human, and that's why you should hire me from now on. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, put put me on your resume list. I will I will gladly give you that reference call. Um, but I, I'm glad that you're doing well. I you know I miss seeing you. I miss seeing everybody that we see in the booth. But uh, you were truly one of the guys that when we traveled around the league, it was it was a lot of fun. When the Angels came to town, it was a lot of fun. When we got to go to Anaheim, you and Gooby uh, were probably at the top of my list. To be brutally honest about, if I was watching a game or had a choice to watch a game, I would watch an Angels broadcast just because of you two. And uh, you, you've been great to us, but uh, your father, just going back in time a little bit and helping people understand how you've gotten into this game, but your father, Cookie Rojas, played, I don't know how many years, but I know he played more than 10 and racked up over 1,500 hits, played for Kansas City, Philadelphia, St. Louis, uh, Cincinnati, uh, eventually went on to coach and managed a couple of years in the big leagues. Tell me about your dad and what kind of impact he had on you and did he encourage you to get in the game or what what kind of influence did he have on you? You know, I, I don't think uh, I don't think he ever once said that I'd like for you to play baseball or or kind of influenced the direction that any of his kids wanted to go. You know, I had three brothers and um, all four boys and you know, we all played baseball just because we were around it so much growing up, but um, I, I think the influence that he and my mom obviously both uh, ha- has had a major impact, on, at least on my life, and I'm sure on my brother's lives, is just the, the fact of having to to pick up and, and leave their country in 1960, 61, uh, leaving Cuba to come to the United States, and you know, not really speaking the language, uh, only really knowing baseball, having some friends and family here, and with everything that was going on there, and and really assimilate as quickly as as he was capable of doing. He started his career with the Cincinnati Reds. It was traded over to the Philadelphia Phillies and it was with the Phillies where he, he got to the big leagues and had a really good run there in the sixties before a brief trade to St. Louis and then ending up in Kansas city as the veteran player on a, on a new franchise, essentially new franchise uh, when he got traded there and ended up his career and in, in, in retiring in 1977. So, um, you know, 16 years for a guy who's five ten, a hundred and nothing. And, a slap hitter, knew how to bond, knew how to hit the hit and run. He just did the little things right. And I think that's what I've taken away uh, from his career is just that uh, 
we're not all the number three or four hitters with with prodigious power and being the guy that uh, always steps up and everyone just stops to watch the game on you know on 25 man rosters you need different types of players and i think that across the board not just in sports but in the real world uh it applies and uh that's how i've always looked at um you know even in my role currently with the rough riders that's how i looked at the hiring process and yeah i'd love to have all these stars that come in here but there's sometimes you you pick up on certain tendencies or conversations with an individual that you know you, you connect with them on a different level the resume says one thing but your gut and your your interaction with them tells you another and you and you pull the trigger on that person and you you it turns out that they're the one that ends up leading the pack because they just have that grind they have the the, the, the fire in their belly and that that's something that i've always gravitated towards and uh, i've tried to kind of share with my kids along the way but he, he continues to have an impact in my life uh you know on a daily basis and continues to whip my my mom's ass down in, in naples they're down in florida he just had his knee replaced uh about a little over five weeks ago and he's doing <laughs> well but uh it's a good thing he didn't listen to me you know 10 years ago about eight years ago i told him get your knee replaced why why should i get my knee replaced stubborn as all hell um you know i don't need to do anything and then you know i should have listened to you <laughs> and uh you know it's funny how the shoe's on the other foot when when your parents are telling you i should have listened to you back in the day you know you know, life comes full circle. Um, Vic, I appreciate you coming on our podcast and I, I, I echo what you uh, said. I'm going to take, Blummer's never said that about me in terms of an all around great human, but I'm going to have to get him to do the same and make that on my resume. That's right. Um, you know, it's funny that you brought that up. My, uh, my dad passed away about 17 years ago and he never forced me into sports, but I obviously played sports my whole life. But my wife is a, a, an immigrant. My wife was uh, same thing. They packed up the car and uh, communist Czech Republic and drove across the border and never looked back. And I think that, um, when you bring that up, I mean, there's a special passion there to, uh, you know, making it on your own, not speaking the language and starting from scratch. But, um, I had the good fortune to play with team USA down in Cuba, um, way back when. And, uh, you know, we went to Havana and Santiago, Cuba. And, uh, I remember standing on the mound in, in Havana in front of like 60,000 fans waiting for them to quiet down, you know, like it was between innings, it was loud and it never stopped, especially when we were in the field, it was crazy. Can you talk a little bit about that, that history, um, that, you know, about the Cuban baseball, um, kind of lore and, um, kind of what it means to, uh, come to America, obviously, and make it. Uh, I know that's more of your dad's kind of lineage, but in terms of what you know about that, and um, we had to, a delayed flight during that same time. I will promise get to a question when uh, Rene Arocha uh, defected, and I remember that they were holding up our flight and we were going, and they couldn't find him in the hotel, and there was this crazy kind of panic from the um, you know the Cuban faction of folks and the team. But obviously, it's something that many players have done uh, come to the U.S. and um, gosh, I mean the Cuban baseball players similar to the Dominican players are, I mean, in my opinion, obviously the best players on the planet. So um, can you kind of touch on your experience with that and what your thoughts are behind the, what it means to come to America and play baseball? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you encapsulated it all really just standing on the field and, and listening to a roar of a crowd and uh, a country that has been starved for on any number of different levels, obviously, but uh, for, for live action baseball, especially major league baseball or, or, you know, at the highest level of amateur baseball and being team USA uh, it, it, you know, like, like the Dominican, like Puerto Rico, Mexico to a certain degree as well, as far as uh, the love of the sport. And, 
And, uh, you know, it's hard. You, you speak of Rene Arocha, and, you know, I immediately started thinking about Eddie Oropesa. I don't know if you guys remember Eddie Oropesa, left-handed reliever with the Arizona Diamondbacks, you know, also from Cuba. And, you know, he was, uh, I think it was a junior uh, tournament in Buffalo, if I'm not mistaken, where he basically just runs and jumps over the fence to escape and to to defect. And that tells you, you know, what what it means. It's not so much about the chase of the major league dream, because obviously that I think every little kid growing up that loves baseball, that's always the dream. That's my son's dream right now at 15 years of age. I had that dream. Uh, but when you're in a country like Cuba, and you are limited across the board from a from a resources perspective. Uh, you you see things periodically from a major league baseball perspective, and you and you see that ninety miles to the north is Key West, and and the opportunity for freedom. You know, it's one of those things you have to make a, a tough decision on: Do I risk my life and that of my family to to try to 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 leave an oppressed communist country to pursue a better life and that really that's what it boils down to i mean the the icing on the cake is getting to the big leagues if you get there right uh there's been some guys that have tremendous talents the uh, hernandez levan and el duque and uh, yasiel puig and uh, jose abreu there's a number of guys that have tremendous talent but there's a lot of cuban players that have escaped or gone away and gone to the minor leagues and never heard of uh, again, um, I'll give you uh, Baldekin that the Angels signed, gave him an $8 million bonus after he made it to the States, and he never got higher than A-ball. And so, but it, it, it's more about getting to the United States and trying to find a better life for yourself. And unfortunately, sometimes the, the entire family doesn't leave the, the island. Uh, my dad had a brother, um, Jorge, who uh, never left Cuba. And because he had a son there, and even though he traveled around uh, back in the day, Jorge was a, a musician and uh, the arts and sciences in Cuba, the, the federation that runs that would would take these groups of artists and ballet dancers and like and travel to different countries, whether it was Spain or Mexico or whatever, to perform. And my dad, every time that he did that, would get the opportunity to go and see his brother. I never met my uncle. And uh, and the reason why Jorge never wanted to leave and and my dad made a number of different calls, one to his former teammate in Philadelphia, uh, the Senator Jim Bunning, uh, to try to get him and, and, and be able to facilitate some sort of uh, opportunity for him to come to the United States. But Jorge never wanted to leave because he didn't want to leave his mother. He didn't want to leave his son. And, uh, you know, he ended up passing away a couple of years ago. Um, and so those, those kind of stories are the ones that really stick out. The ones that make the headlines are these ones like the Rene Oroches and the like that, um, Yasiel going to, to Mexico and, and, and the like that because they're mainstream. And in today's world, that's what it's the clickbait. It's what sells and so on and so forth. But there's countless thousands of other stories of people on makeshift rafts trying to leave a country that, you know, just trying to get out of it, whether they land in the Dominican or Haiti or United States or Mexico, they're just trying to leave a, a country that, Firstly, has nothing. And I think, you know, for the longest time, and I know a really long-winded answer to your question, but uh, there's there's been an uprising here of late. And uh, it's, it's always been there, especially in South Florida because of, uh, you know, the Cuban population down in Miami and Dade County and, and Broward County. But even the Cuban people are starting to stand up for themselves. And I thought things would change once Fidel passed away, but it's it really hasn't. And until that Castro family is completely eradicated, 
uh, and they finally see the light and, and kind of get to where we are now in our society and in 2021 and, and get with the times, uh, it's unfortunate that the people of Cuba continue to have to live the way that they do, you know, scrapping for food and, and having their liberties, you know, trampled upon uh, on a daily basis. Well, I mean, use the word encapsulate with my question. And I mean, please don't apologize for being long-winded because that's, I mean, that's what we do. That's what this forum is all about. I would say the same exactly um, in regards to my wife, which is Blum started with the question about your father. My father-in-law, I never met, but same thing. It takes a lot of heart and soul and, and, you know, vision to just pack up your family and leave. And like you said, I think you, you nailed it with that, you know, playing in the big leagues or playing a sport you love for a living that's every little boy's dream. That's icing on the cake. But there are so many other stories, like you said, about oppression and risk and challenges and things. And appreciate you touching on that because I think that's, I mean, that's the human side of this. And it's fantastic that you're probably um, thankful to your parents to get you where you got because, uh, you know, America is a great place to live and we talk about it all the time. So, no, thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, no worries. I mean, I've been, I've been stubborn over the years saying that I'll never, I'll never go to the island until it's normal, until the Cuban people are are celebrating in the streets that, you know, they finally got their, their liberty. And, uh, and, you know, the older my mom and dad get, dad's 82 now, and my mom's going to be 82 uh, later this year, the more concerned I get that I'm never going to get that opportunity because I, I want to go back with them. You know, I want them to, I want them to uh, kind of walk me through things, you know, and, and show me kind of where they grew up and stuff. And it's, it's, it's hard. It's something that means a great deal to me. And it might, I might just have to swallow my pride and, and suck it up and go and, you know, and MF all those guys that are still there. But um, just to have that opportunity to, to share that with my parents would be something that would be very special to me. Sorry guys. <clears throat> no, you're Vic, you're the best. And I, and the emotion of it is what's great. And you know, you are connected, you are plugged into what's going on. And it and it's good to hear a perspective from somebody who is that closely related to Cuba and understanding the situation and, and seeing the family go through it. Because, you know, up here in the States, you're kind of protected in this bubble of the United States being blessed to grow up in a country that is as free as it is. But then we get in the game of baseball. And that's another thing that baseball I love about it is that it's the diversity, it's it's the multiculturalism, it's but it's also the ability to meet some of these guys. Like, you know, I've played with Denny Baez, I played with El Duque, I'm watching Jordan Alvarez and Yuli Gurriel and Oledmus Diaz and some of these guys. But some of the stories that I've heard, Jose Contreras is a guy that really kind of jumps to uh, uh, the forefront of my mind just because of some of the stories that he told about having to play in Cuba in that uh, in that oppressed society but actually they're being used you know to compete and represent their country and show the greatness of it but that's i want to get to the you know the happier side of things the joyful side of things because the passion of the cuban players what is what impressed me most considering everything they've gone through to get to the position to play the game of baseball that is a tiny country and i mean per capita to have the the great ball players that they've had what is it down there that creates creates these Yasiel Puigs, these all-stars, these guys that compete and have, you know, these eternal motors inside of them to be great players. What is it about that country and how they develop the, the player in Cuba that makes them so great? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess you could say the same thing about the Dominican and Puerto Rico. I mean, uh, all essentially island mm -hmm. nations and, and, you know, with, with small populations. And, uh, you know, I, I would say that maybe in Cuba, it's still 
Well, it, it is. I mean, the clock has stopped. It's still 1959 there. And while there's still <laughs> some sort of social media and, you know, there's, there's, there's been advances, uh, it has been a slow trickle for those individuals on a mass level to, to really absorb it all. And, and to that end, I mean, my dad telling me stories about what he used to do and picking up a rock and a sugar cane and just, you know, playing a, a game and, wow. uh, learning the game the hard way, if you will, or, having a you know tape if you could find tape and creating a ball and like we all did before you got wiffle balls and blitz balls and stuff like that is <laughs> you know play play stick ball um you know my dad would throw rocks uh to try to strengthen his arm just you hear stories uh, of these guys that uh was it framber valdez if i'm not if I'm not mistaken mm-hmm. in the dominican republic um what using cornmeal taking his left hand or his wrist and and kind of twisting through yep. the cornmeal of a barrel of a cornmeal to to strengthen his shoulder it's just like these these archaic type of <laughs> uh, things to 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 better themselves to strengthen themselves not just physically but mentally and I, I agree. think that's the biggest difference is that i think if you can wrap your head around the mental situation that you are currently in and i'm talking about people that are in a situation like Cuba right now, uh, I think the physical stuff, you know, you can always work on that. But once you're able to really put yourself uh, in the right mindset to, all right, this is what it is. This is how I'm going to make myself better. And I'm going to put my best foot forward. I I think that's why you get so many individuals that are coming from the island that say, uh, I can play and I'm going to show you I can play. I mean, Yuli, yeah, people forget Yuli's what 35, 36 years old. He got a late start. Yep. Uh, and here's a guy that just, you know, no pun intended, fell out of the boat and was hitting. I mean, it just that's just that that's just his nature, <laughs> right? It it doesn't matter. It took him that long to be able to escape and to to to, to kind of get uh, to the states. And when given the opportunity, he just he just went off and and continues to do it. Um, and that's that's the weird thing about it that he's you know whatever he is thirty he's thirty six thirty seven right uh, we're pretty close to it. Yeah. No, uh, he's 37. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, he hasn't free, hit free agency yet. How about that? There's some, you know, that, that, <laughs> that, that's a good thing for the CBA. I try to work, uh, see if you can keep players oh under gosh. contract till they're 36 before they hit free agency. <laughs> but they uh, would love to, wouldn't they? Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but that, you know, <laughs> I think that's what it is. I think it's a mental side of things. It's not hard to get my son to, uh, he, he, he got home the other day. He had morning lift. He had school, that they had optional workouts, came home, laid down on the couch. He slept in the car all the way home from school, laid down on the couch, and then after dinner said, Do you do you want to throw? Uh, and I said, sure. And we went out and we threw. And he's always he's always constantly working, right? But those those kids, it seems like that have a passion. Let me let me rephrase. It seems like in the United States, and I don't want to make a blanket statement, but I guess I'm kind of going to be that people that have like the really have this talent inside of them feel like they have to work a little bit less or that they, they don't have to work as hard to get to that next level because you know you've got talent and you possess it and it's easy for the game comes easy to you whatever sport and then there are kids that maybe don't have that talent but boy that just burns in their belly they just they just want to get better get better get better and i think the uh the people in cuba the players in cuba are really lean more towards the latter they don't know what that avenue is going to be, but man, it just burns inside of them. And they're going to do everything in their power, God willing, God-given talent, God-given ability to, to try to make that dream a reality. And if it fails, at least you know you, you failed by, by 
by busting your ass at it. And I think that's probably, you know, the, the lack of video and social media and stuff like that probably helps in certain degree. I, I'm just spitballing here, but that's just me, you know, Big off the time. top of my head trying to figure out why there is so much talent that's generated from a per capita basis out of such a, a tiny little country. But for right now, listen to a word from our sponsor. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. And we are back. I also think what you what you hit on, I mean, when you talk about uh, any sort of immigration, like, um, you know, our local 7-Eleven is owned by a family and they work 24-7. I mean, I think when you don't have, you're not worried about your 401k and you're not worried about the security in the future, you're worried about the now and you got to make it happen. And, and I think you're, to your point, the mental toughness is the other key. You know, we talk all the time about being thankful for being uh, in America, you know, with our frontline, you know, healthcare workers and the military and things that they do for us. I mean, we do, we have kind of a, I don't know if it's a cushy life, but you know, I'm, I'm listening to a book now called life is sport. And I think the grinding you brought up and the mental toughness and things that we now look back and go, gosh, if when I was 21 or 22, if I had just a little more mental toughness or a little more wherewithal, but I think you're right. I think these small Island nations and certainly um, people with nothing to lose and nothing to risk except that burning desire to, um, you know, either experience freedom or experience success um, certainly leads leads to having a high rate, I guess, for lack of a better word. I've always said this about um, athletes in general, right? The tip of the spear isn't always, I mean, we've all seen guys that throw 95 that can't find the strike zone. Guess what? No big leagues for that guy. And we've seen guys that throw 85 that have that burning desire, but you know, they don't have the stuff to do it, right? The tip of the spear is the guys typically that have, you know, the mental toughness as well as the talent. And I think yeah. that's where that, that's where that kind of meet. Yeah. Real quick, real, real, tell real quick. I'm just on the heels of that. I, and to your point is, uh, you know, I, this was, like I said, this summer was my first foray into, you know, real travel ball, if you will, select travel ball at the highest level, you know, the team, I remember watching. I remember watching. Tyler's fifteen and is a junior. He's going to turn sixteen uh, coming up here in a month, right? And so he, you know, he's a class of twenty-three guy. So he just typically by his age, he's really a twenty-four. But because we started him in school early, he's a twenty-three, and he's just now starting his growth spurt. He's like five ten, five eleven, one hundred and fifty. He's a beanpole. Still, he's still growing. And I remember dropping off his first practice. There's a dude from Oklahoma that's 6'3", 235. There's a new, the shortstop is 6'2 and a half, 185. He's 16 years old. 
Now, granted, Lord. some of these kids are on the upper edge of 16, so they're going to turn 17 because they're going to be juniors as well, right? Um, and I remember him looking around. <laughs> I remember leaving that place. I'm like, I guarantee you he's going to have that conversation with me, how big these dudes were. And as I watched them, uh, you could see, okay, these guys have some ability. But then they start playing games, right? And and you could see this team was – was made up of a lot of individuals, a lot of talented individuals, but they never, never played cohesively. And as the season progressed, Tyler got more and more playing time, eventually played a lot more second base. And he kind of, just like anything else, right? He was just getting into the flow of things. He was the 20th guy on a 19-man roster. He had to work his way in uh, and so on and so forth. And what I kept saying, especially towards the end of the season, because you know parents like to talk, especially in the travel ball world, you know, and having a baseball background, they would gravitate towards me and just, you know, pick my brain. And I was always very, I don't know, diplomatic about it in that I never spoke <laughs> individually about a player, but I, I spoke about the game and how it's being managed and the decisions being made. Uh, and, and the one thing that always kept, I kept coming back to is that they are missing the, the mental, the physical and the emotional part of this, uh, equation, because there's a lot of kids out there that have talent. And just don't know what to do with that talent. And if you don't have the people in the right place to guide them and to just talk to them, it's not about hitting fungos or throwing BP for 45 minutes and hitting off a tee for an hour. Because uh, that's what that's what their mind is, right? They see it on Instagram. Let's go do it. Let's just go, go, go. It's more of the talking. I spend more time talking to my son than anything else and kind of having him understand the mental side of it, the logical part of it. So that he can understand it, so that there's a quick fix in his brain that he realizes that he's doing something wrong. He could step away for a moment and emotionally handle the situation, but mentally be able to, okay, this, I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna go the opposite way and I'm gonna try to get to this point because I understand the dynamics of what it is that I'm trying to get to. That I think is what's missing uh, greatly in, in I, I think, across the board in the game of baseball, what I call kind of the, the deprogramming of baseball players needs to happen. I think we've gotten so far down this rabbit hole of analytics that unfortunately at the, especially at the highest levels, guys have lost the feel for the game and the fundamentals of the game. And just like the little nuances are lost because they are so dialed into the, the pocket card or the, the card that's in their hat or the analytics that were fed to them before the game um, that don't, update in real time they don't account for real time circumstances or the individual that's happening on the mound you know or the uh, the guy at the plate so those three things for me mental physical and emotional are things that really are lacking from from a growth perspective in the game of baseball i know i kind of went off a little bit but that's just i just wanted to say that on the heels of what you had mentioned total that's what this is all about. You know, it's funny. You mean the travel ball parents aren't the beacon of, of what's, <laughs> what, <laughs> what we're supposed to be doing? Well, and for the most part, they've been, they've been great. You know, they've been, yeah. they're, they're all good people and they all mean well. And for the most part, fortunately for us, our group was fairly chill in the, you know, the back and forth stuff. But, you know, everybody's kids, the greatest kid, right? And greatest talent and um, I just kept saying to them, I'm like, we're playing these tournaments. Look around. Do you see any scouts here? Why aren't there scouts here? If you guys are that good, right? Why aren't there scouts here? Has it been because, is it because we've been, you know, run ruled eight <laughs> times this year and with this talent that we have on this team, like yeah, you get the attention. You have to, sometimes you got to look in the mirror. 
You know what I mean? It's in that's a and, and you have to have these difficult conversations with these players at a young age so that they're aware of these things. That's one thing I tell my son all the time. So don't don't look behind home plate for the scout, the TCU guy or the Arkansas or the Alabama guy. Those are those one, those are the ones that want to be seen. The real scouts and the ones you always have to watch out for, the guys that are sitting in their car or at the top of the hill or watching you, how you walk onto the field or run onto the field. If you're slapping high fives, those are the those are the real scouts, right? Because the the baseball side of thing, everyone, if you're good, you can see the baseball side of thing. The real scout wants to see the other, the intangibles that you bring to the table. If they bring you into their program, what type of person you are, what type of teammate. So I, I've always put this in his head, like you're in a fishbowl now, man. No matter what, the minute you get out of the car, just assume somebody's watching you and and your actions and just just act accordingly and just be cognizant of it and you'll you'll be fine. You know what? You you hit on the analytics part of it. And by the way, all the information you're giving us is great because you give that insight into the uh, the, the travel ball situation, but you hit on the analytics. And I think it's really interesting the way your career has kind of kind of moved from the from the booth into the into working in a front office for a team. Now, the analytics, and I agree with you, they have a place in the game, but at the same time, there's a reason why some of those scouts have their eyes on players because those players are eventually going to represent the organization, eventually represent the college. But at the same time, you went into the booth, did a great job calling games, and you made the choice a couple of years ago to interview for a GM. And I don't think there's too many guys that have moved from the booth or even had the idea that they'd have the possibility to move from the booth into a GM interview type situation for a major league baseball team. Explain to me the genesis of that and then explain to me how that, that how the interview process actually went. Well, I, you know, it was a, uh, it was really a, Matter of circumstance, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, had I had it been another team, I, you know, I certainly wouldn't have, you know, thought about it or put my hat in the rink or thrown my hat in the rink. But the Angel situation, you know, having having grown up, you know, my dad started working for the for the Halos in 1982 after he finished coaching with the Cubs, and so he was in their front office from 82 to 92, and that included a stint managing the ball club in, in 1988. So I kind of. You know, I grew up a Royals fan because I grew up in Kansas City. My going to the ballpark, I became a Cubs fan when Dad was was coaching there, and that was short lived because they were awful from <laughs> seventy eight through eighty one. And then in eighty two, you know, Dad joined the Angels, and you know they had that great veteran team that lost to Milwaukee after going up two games and none and getting swept in Milwaukee. And I cried my my eyes out, and so I became an Angel fan. Then you know eighty eighty six happened, another you know heartbreak. Oh man. Um, so I kind of grew up in that Angels family and watched Dad coach or manage in, in 1988. I spent the summer with them, and then I signed with them in 1990. So it's been in my blood. And then having spent the previous 11 years in their broadcast booth, you know, just there was a connection to the organization, lifelong connection, if you will. And uh, you know, as last year played out, it was it was not a it was an awful season. It was just uh, I couldn't on, agree more. A number of different levels from the from the pandemic and, and and everything that went on, especially from a broadcast perspective and uh, doing our jobs. But then the team just wasn't very good. And you know, you just you, you you hear things. You know how it is. I mean, you're around guys. You hear around front office guys and players and coaches, and you just hear everything from mm-hmm. from the minor leagues on up. I was getting really frustrated as a as a fan of the team, as someone who cared about the organization. You know, there were some there were some rumors 
I think it was about mid-September, Ken Rosenthal had written an article about Billy Epler and his job being in jeopardy. And so that's the first time there was the quote unquote blood in the water, if you will. Um, and so I've sent a, a message to our team president, John Carpino, and caught him off guard and just said, listen, I don't know where you guys are going. I'm not asking for inside information. I'm just saying if the, if there happens to be a change, don't be surprised if I you know, put my, my hat in the ring. And so it's, I joked around about saying that it was, uh, I had a Jerry Maguire moment, right? I just started, I started writing the memo. Like I wanted to put all my thoughts on paper of what I was seeing. Cause I was that frustrated. And then the last game of the season happens and, uh, lo and behold, Blummer, I'm walking out to my car. You text me mm-hmm. and you say, are you, are you, are you putting your name into, uh, some to that effect? You, are you throwing your name into the, into the ring? And I said, what happened? And then you, you're the one that told me basically that Epler had just gotten blown out. It was oh, literally wow. from the last out till I was walking to the car. I had no idea. I was, I was getting to the car to go to bed, drive back to, to, to Texas with my wife. That's, <laughs> I got in the car. We went to Chipotle across the street from the ballpark and I sat in my, my truck and I composed a, a text message to Artie Moreno, our, our owner. And I said, uh, with clear mind and, and conviction, I want that effing job, you know, <laughs> and, and that's how that ball started rolling. And they gave me the opportunity to interview for the position. I spoke with, uh, with John Carpino and Bill Stoneman, who's an uh, advisor to, to Artie and the organization. And, and I know there was somebody else on there, but they were in the background and Artie watched all the interviews and, you know, I gave it my best shot and, and, and really it was, it was my opportunity to provide a philosophy that I, I felt is really a one of how to create and really, really generate talent at the lowest levels. And it starts with what I was talking about, the whole, the mental, the physical, the emotional part of things, really diving into the psychological aspect of things that unfortunately in our world, especially in the baseball world from an analytics, analytics perspective, it seems like you get these philosophies in air quotes that are one size fits all, right? So we are launch angle. Everybody's going to hit launch angle <laughs> and we're going to try to make everybody a launch angle type of hitter. And it just doesn't work. It, it clicks for some guys. It, it doesn't for others. It doesn't compute. Uh, there's language barriers that doesn't necessarily translate. And sometimes you just have to look at individuals and say their swing is not meant to be that. And I'll, I'll give you an example. And I don't, I don't know this to be factual, but the, this is based on secondhand information that I got. Matt Theis was a first-round pick of the Angels out of Virginia. He was a catcher with a great bat, one of the best bats in, the, in, in college baseball coming out that year. Uh, he was a spray guy. He was a gap-to-gap guy with the occasional pop, probably running to 10, 15, maybe 20 on a good year at the major league level. He was a, you know, a stronger, thicker Mark Grace, if you will. With the plan was they were going to move him from catching over to first base because they just loved his bat so much. Well, that's what he was. That's that's who he is. That's what if as you draft him out of college, that's what you project him to be. And he got into this mode from a philosophical standpoint of trying to lift the ball. They wanted to lift the ball more. Well, you know, Matty's been a guy that's been on the forty man roster, but it's never really as a first round pick. It's never really kind of flourished, right? It, just because to me they cha- they changed him. They they took someone that was really good at doing something mm-hmm. and tried to mold him into something that he was not. And so that was something that I really wanted to, to kind of really put forth as far as the, the philosophical side of things. 
and 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 I also really ham, hammered home the point on the on the translation part. You know, you got Latin players that they're looking at these numbers and these things you want them to do, and it they, it just doesn't compute. Yeah. You got to be able to read an individual. You know, when you're speaking to somebody, when you are connecting with them, you know by the look in their eyes and their body language whether or not they're absorbing what you're what you're telling them. You should. As a teacher, you should have that ability. And if you don't, let's get that teacher in a place where they can finally learn that characteristic so that the information that you're feeding down to these players is easily understood. And if they're not understanding it that way, how can I teach it a different way so that that individual understands it? Just like we do today, right? I can, I can tell my kid, you know, hey, your, your, your hand, you're drifting a little bit from your weight, from your backside to the front side. That means you're, you're pushing the ball a little bit. My kid understands what I'm saying. I can just show him and he gets it. But there's other kids that are just looking at me like, uh, man, I need to snap my girlfriend later on today. You know what I mean? They're like, they're gone. They're like, they're in a different place. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where I think there's a disconnect sometimes with the analytics side of things. And the other thing I, I've already mentioned to you is analytics gets you to a place to draw up a game plan. And I'm just talking specifically at the major league level. I think it's great from a scouting report perspective and, and so on and so forth. I think analytics get you to a place to, to the starting line. But once that race starts, the analytics are no longer, should no longer be the crutch for the rest of that particular game. And I say that from the standpoint of as individuals, right, on a daily basis, we change. We're different. Our quick twitch may not be quick twitchy that night, right? Our hands may be a tick slower. Uh, You may be feeling a little crappy or under the weather, so you're not feeling it. Verlander may not be throwing 97, 98, and he's relying more on the breaking ball. The statistics and the analytics are based on historical data that are compiled to give you an information. Typically, in a 2-0 count, this is what he likes to throw. But maybe today he doesn't have that pitch. So your eyes and your scouting report among each other have to tell you what to expect. You know, what are your eyes telling you? What are you? What's the feel? And that's what I say about the analytics. They're not in real time. They're not adapting and constantly evolving in real time. And so, therefore, we got to stop kind of leaning on them as hard as we do in-game. You know, managers, ask Dave Roberts. Ask Dave Roberts what he felt when Kevin Cash is going out to take Blake Snell out of the game Dude, no doubt. Uh, last year in the World Series. Roberts is there going, brother, I know. I've been there. <laughs> Good luck with that. Uh, and that's why Roberts kind of played – he played the hand that he was dealt last year. He says, I'm just – if I'm going to lose – I'm going to lose this way because I've lost the other way and it sucks. And so my eyes are telling me, my gut is telling me, this is the guy I got to go with. And lo and behold, they end up winning the whole thing. So I, I that that's kind of my feel, my passion. That's what I wanted to share with the organization. I know I can lead. I know I can staff. And, and I know from a baseball perspective, I understand how to play the game the right way. And I think if you surround yourself with the proper staffing from from ground zero on up, I think there's no reason why you you can't build a, a winning organization that constantly churns out, um, you know, talented ballplayers. Now sometimes it's not going to work out. You can have the best team and not win. You know, you, you got to play clean. Uh, you know, a lot more than the other team in order for things to to work out over a course of 162 game schedule. <laughs> um, but I felt really, really strongly about my ability to to be that guy, and that's why you know I 
I put my my hat in the ring, and you know, it went to a, a, another great individual in Perry Manassi who cut his teeth in Toronto and Atlanta, and I've known since he was helping his dad being a clubby uh, with the Texas Rangers when I was doing radio for the Rangers. So. Uh, if anybody was going to get it, I'm thrilled Perry got the gig. And uh, but I was glad and thankful for the opportunity to have gone through the uh, the interview process. Well, you can tell that you're passionate about it. And I think any business, when you talk to an entrepreneur, they talk about you know I just care. And I think it's it just shines through. Obviously, your passion for the Angels organization. I think it's a rare thing. I think most people would say, you know, I just want a GM job. Where can I go? Toronto or you know Milwaukee or. But I think the the thing that that comes out in your voice and your statement is that you know, the angels is certainly a good starting off point for you. And that that's, that's what started this whole thing is how much you care. Um, I also see why you and Blummer are tight because we have the same philosophy about that. The analytics thing. I always, I am, I uh, equate it to poker. Basically in poker, you get your chips in with the best hand, right? I mean, that's what you're trying to do. But then as the hand unfolds, there's a lot of nuance to it. How are you feeling? What card came on the turn? What card came on the flop? Like you have to you have to learn to play the game. And I think people misunderstand, you know, I guess the first time analytics was brought to the mainstream, like something like Moneyball, you know, somebody like Kevin Euclid did not grow up trying to be a, you know, the Greek God of walks or whatever, right. but guess what? That's what he is. And so let's plug him into our system. And I think your philosophy, it just rings so true, which is let's get the guys that fit our style and let's get the guys that fit our philosophy and let's get the guys that have the passion. And, you know, you mentioned to your son, like, Let's get the guys that walk on the field from their car the right way and walk off the field the right way. Let's get those guys in the organization and that will breed success ultimately if we can keep more and more and more of those guys in our organization. So, um, you know, there's not a question there, but you can tell that your passion shines through. And I think that's where some of these organizations need more guys from our generation that played for a long time, that played with the right type of guys. And then you mentioned the talent on your son's travel team, but, you know, getting the chemistry and getting all of those guys to kind of row the boat in the same direction comes from, like you said, a foundational philosophy. So really insightful, really passionate. And you, you know, in my mind, you hit the nail on the head. So, I mean, Blummer and I continually talk about that and agree on that, that analytics are something that you want to use. I was watching the Dodger game last night, Padre Dodger game. And, uh, I hadn't seen this before. Maybe I'm not watching enough baseball, but Turner, not Trey, Justin was playing third base. And then with two strikes, he'd run over to the second base, like short right field. I'm like, so now not only is it like, you know, okay, this is what we're doing for the hitter. I guess they didn't want him to throw, you know, throw a bunt down till after two strikes, but they're moving all the time. Like you said, that card in their pocket or that card in their hat. I had not seen that one, two count. Oh, now the third baseman goes play short right field. Like what? Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's a, it's a little odd for sure. And you know, I, I I, I, you talk about doing the little things right. And I, I joke all the time when Pedroia was still playing in his prime, I said, I'll take 25 of those guys and I'll take my chances every single game. Uh, you know, David Fletcher kind of comes to mind now too, for the, for the angels, just a, you know, just a quiet leader. And, and that's kind of what I tell my son too. And, and I, and I talk a lot about him because now that he's back to baseball, it, it's easy for me to connect with him and, and talk the game. He's not the boisterous, in-your-face kind of individual. He's more of a reserved guy. doesn't want to doesn't want to be out. Doesn't want to be embarrassed. You know, he's one of those guys. But everyone connects with him. He's got that personality that people just gravitate towards him. And that's what I tell him. I said, Tyler, people in, in general, people want to be led. They don't know it, but they want to be led. 
because the ones that are the screamers and stuff, those aren't, those aren't leaders. That's just raw, raw stuff. And you notice what happens with those raw, raw guys when they, the, the other team scores two runs in the first inning, they're quiet all of a sudden until you rally again in the seventh, right? <laughs> so the key is to, to keep it an even keel. If you do things right, and on the occasion, on a rare occasion where you bark at somebody, it'll command respect. But you have to do it you know, at the right time. You have to know your place. But just you can lead. You could be the youngest guy on your team and still be the leader of your team because you do the little things right. Uh, and it doesn't mean brown nosing or sucking up and hoping that the coach points you out and all that stuff. Just talking to your teammates, you can lead by just having conversations with them, constantly conversations. And I think that's that's one of the things that you know. There's there's certain guys in in the game that are capable of doing that. People, you know, people give Mike Trout you know a hard time that oh he's. You know, is he really a leader? Yeah, he's a leader, man. He's the one. Of the, he's the best player in baseball, and just because he's not that, you know, throwing a fit or throwing his helmet or anything, that, that he's not leading his ball club. That's just that's just not in his nature. But there's other ways to lead. I think I think we just always want as fans or in general want that instant gratification of seeing people do that. Oh man, that's a societal thing too. It's crazy. Um, you talked about Mike Trout. You talked about your passion for the Angels. I think one of the most frustrating things in Major League Baseball right now, if, if I'm Rob Manfred, is the fact that the Angels have two of the best players to have ever walked the planet, and they are not playing playoff baseball. Give Having watched Otani mature, are you shocked he is as good as he is? I am not shocked he's as good as he is. I am completely surprised that he was able to put the atrocious 2020 season behind him and be able to to live at the level that he's living at today. Good call. That that's what's amazing to me. He he looked so lost offensively last year uh, that I was worried about him. I really was. Mm-hmm. And I mean his back foot was bailing on left-handed sliders and which is just think about that lefty on lefty. Yep. Uh, which was mind-blowing to me. And so to psychologically put that behind. I don't talk about the pitching because he was working his way back from Tommy John and, and the like, but from an offensive perspective to come out the way he, he has, I mean, basically what we saw uh, in his rookie campaign and remember in his rookie campaign under Mike Sosha and, and the leadership, it was, it was kid gloves, right? We were going to, big time. you know, he wasn't going to hit the day before or after that he pitched. And it was kind of like the new Jabba rules, if you will, with Jabba Chamberlain and the Yankees. I, I think my concern this year is, as good a start as he had on both the offensive side and on the pitching side, once you get to the dog days of summer, will he be able to sustain it? Because he hadn't been able to really do it at that level uh, with that workload for a whole season. Uh, remember, rookie campaign, he got shut down from a pitching perspective because the elbow was was a little nappy in August, and then he just became an offensive player until mm-hmm. they ended up having to cut him. Uh, so I, I, he's, he is... He is amazing. The ball sounds differently off his bat. The way he runs, it just he makes everything look easy. But the mental side of it, so impressed with what he's been able to do, uh, carrying the weight of his country on his shoulders, and you know all the pressure being a two-way player at that level. It's just insane to me. And you know, uh, it's it's been fun to watch. It really has, and he has been able to sustain it. Gave up a couple home runs the other day against the uh, the Orioles, but otherwise he's been consistent the walk issues that he had early on in the year have kind of just gone away so he just keeps getting better and better and i think it's fun to watch it's good for the game 100 i was actually just going to say that i think it's phenomenal for the game 
And that being said, uh, you know, there's been some talk about expanding the playoffs and I've kind of been anti because I'm kind of this traditionalist in baseball, but in, in knowing that two of the best players are not getting the opportunity to showcase in a playoff type situation, I'm kind of leaning towards that expanded playoff situation. Would you, would you entertain the idea of having that expanded playoff just to get some of these teams uh, like the Angels in there and create a little more competition or maybe have that surprise like the Seattle Mariners are this season, maybe have a chance to get in a playoff situation? I, I just don't want to water it down. You know, I like you, you play six months and 162 games. You know, there's something to be said about the grind of a season. And then for that to have the motivation of, oh, well, I mean, if you're one of the top 15 teams, you know, half the league gets into the – the playoffs, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like the hockey, just, NBA. Yeah, I just kind of, I'm still, I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm sold on it. I don't mind expanding it a little bit, but I just don't want to go this crazy number. And you know, because I, I think there's, if you, if you're good, do you care about winning a division? You know, I mean, other than the, the that's monetary, what I would, I would hate that they lose that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, unless you know, if you make the, uh, you make the monetary reward you know, greater for winning a division and no second place money or there whatever, you, you know what, I, so that there's something to, to, to play for. So, cause I, I think, I think fans like the division thing. I think fans like, you know, where you're standing and do you have a shot? You know, the wild card gives you a little secondary outlet, you know, cause you're looking at it. If you've got a shot, if you're Seattle or anybody above them, Toronto that really hasn't played to their abilities this year, and you still have an outside shot, although the Yankees have gone crazy of late and they were yeah. firing Boone, you know, about a month ago. Um, but <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's kind of crazy how that, you know, it's funny. I, I bring that up. I jokingly bring that up about Booney cause that's just, you know, Yankee fans are, you know, they're unique in that regard. But I remember uh, when the Royals, the year that they got to the world series, the first time and lost to San Francisco, if I remember correctly, we were in Kansas city mm-hmm. and Ned Yost was getting crushed i mean crushed uh and they wanted him out they wanted to change yeah. things and um i think it was a, the abanias pickup and abanias had some team meeting and then they go off and you know have this this great run uh the following year i remember in toronto i think it was john gibbons was getting crushed and they wanted to fire gibby who was one of the greatest dudes ever ever and yeah and they weren't playing well and all of a sudden you know, they start playing well and they get to the playoffs. And so I, I think, I think it's good. I think if you are a manager and you're getting crushed by your fan base, maybe not Luis Rojas this year with the Mets, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Booney, it, it's, it seems to be working out well for Booney getting crushed and then maybe getting your team to the playoffs and deep into the playoffs. Hey dude, give me, if you've been paying attention to the sticky stuff, you, you pitched and caught. And I want to know what you think about the sticky situation that's going on in Major League Baseball. People are surprised that this was happening. I mean, I could tell you, <laughs> I could go through a roster and pretty much tell you where everybody put their stuff. I mean, you get so obvious. I was going to say, you could have an all-star team of where they put no, that stuff. No yeah, doubt, No doubt. All-star locations. Uh, I just, <laughs> what I don't understand sometimes from, from a Major League Baseball perspective is that there are rules in the rule book. And yet you you clip the umpires and don't allow them to enforce the rules that are already in the rule book. You know, everyone talks about, well, you don't want to be the manager that points something out because your guys 
just take it out of the manager's hands. Let the let the umpires walk out there, just like they did with Joe Negro when he was at the Twins at Angel <laughs> Stadium and yeah, the Emery board right. flying out of his back pocket. <laughs> what are you talking about? That wasn't mine. <laughs> right. So just just let umpires do it. You know, you talk about pitch clock and moving the game along. There are rules that the umpire can ask the batter to step in the batter's box. And if he doesn't, he can start calling pitches. You want to see how fast pitchers get on the mound or hitters get in the box if an umpire just starts calling pitches? Dude, great point. The, those rules are in there. You're, I mean, you're, you're, you're really stunting the ability of umpires uh, and the game, you know, and you, got, you, you start creating all these new rules when there's already rules in place that will help you facilitate what it is that you're trying to do, move the game along, have guys not cheat, so on and so forth. We just go round and round with the uh, the old whiteboard erase and write some new stuff up there and erase every year is something new. And uh, the spider tech stuff and the, t- the sticky stuff, that's been around for years. And I, I think guys just, you know, they, they just took it to another level. You know, we, we used to get periodically working in TV, it's, you know, some guys in the bullpen, right? And he's got the, got the bullfrog can at his, he's spraying his, his forearm, and then he's got the rosin, and he's tapping it on there, and we get in trouble for for showing that. I'm like, how about going into the bathroom? I know, and putting it yeah. on instead of standing on the mound <laughs> in front of fifty thousand people on national TV. on national TV doing it. I mean, it's it's not our fault; it's your guys' fault. So, but that's been around forever. Fire, fire the camera operator. Yeah. Like, what yeah. was he doing? Like, no, let let if it's supposed to be discreet. And you know, Blummer and I said they should just have a substance that is kind of universally accepted. I mean, most this kind of goes to the analytics as well, right? You know, I think until we started looking at spin rate, nobody really cared what the sticky stuff was. And then when somebody found a sticky stuff that made the spin rate whatever ten degrees higher, then it's like, all right, this that now we're now we're going overboard. But I, you know. We're all from the same era, Vic, and I think you nailed it. Really appreciate you being on the podcast, but I mean, you 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 enlightened us um, in many ways, and uh, we appreciate having you on. No, it's my pleasure. You guys always love talking with you. No, it's always good talking baseball with you. I love it's the passion that really does it for me, and the conviction that you speak with, and you always back it up with you know, you know, even if it's the craziest idea, you've always got some some input behind it to back it up. But one more thing before I want to hit before we let you go is not you. You were like the Renaissance guy of baseball because you've played, you've coached, you've managed. I mean, you were with Ashby where you, you I think you played and managed and GM'd a, an independent league team. Uh, now you're running a, a minor league franchise, but you also have an apparel company too, Big Fly. Yep. Yep. I've uh, I've done a little bit. Tell us about that and how's it going? I am the, uh, let's see, I'm a jack of all trades and master of absolutely none. Uh, it's, uh, it's been going well, man. I just, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I never received my, my degree from college. And so when I got into the work world, I felt like I had to accelerate my path a little bit to catch up. And so that's why I kind of bounced around and did some, I worked in minor league baseball and hockey and golf industry. I've done did a lot of different things. And all of a sudden I had this wild hair uh, when I was 30, 31 years of age. And I think I'm going to try my hand at broadcasting. And so I ended up in Newark, New Jersey as assistant GM. Rick Cerrone, the former big league catcher, owned the team. I sent him my resume. He goes, I love your resume. But because my idea was, get this, my idea was, <laughs> let me see if I can get an independent baseball playing gig, you know, to make the uh, the, the wealthy $1,200, $1,300 a month. And Ooh, then yeah. in my downtime, yeah. go to the radio station and kind of learn the broadcasting side of things, you know, the, the technical side. And uh, Cerrone. So you were doing this all at the same time? Uh, well, I 
I was working at the time when I made this decision, I was consulting for the Performing Arts Center of Greater Miami. I was their director of marketing communications, and then I left there to consult them. This is insane. And uh, at the time that I made the decision, because uh, I was consulting and it was the holidays and I was getting bored, so I went and worked for Nordstrom, Boca Raton, and customer service. <laughs> and I, that's that's when I had this revelation I want to try broadcasting. So I started calling my buddies about, well, I'm only 30. you know, Maybe I can still play and make a little money and learn the broadcasting side of things. Nobody wanted to sign me as a player. Even Cerrone said, nah, I don't need you as a player, but I like your resume. Why don't you come up to Newark? It's independent ball. You could be the AGM. You could put the team together. And then uh, during games, we already have a play-by-play guy, but you can go up and do color on the, on, the, on the broadcast. I'm like, all right, cool. So I take the gig. My wife gets hired as the office manager. So she was my technically my signing bonus. And so we go up to Newark <laughs> and we're working for the Bears. I'm putting together the team. Obviously, I inherited a team from the year before, but I'm putting together a team. And Conseco, uh, Ozzy Conseco, was playing for us. And Jose just got released from, I had already signed Jack Armstrong and Jamie Navarro because I knew those guys. And uh, Jose calls me. And Jose played with both of my older brothers in the A system. He says, Hey, I just got released. Uh, I'd love to come to Newark and play for, uh, w- with my brother and, and the Bears. I'm like, Right on. So we create this contract. Uh, unique contract. He comes, he signs with us. We sign Jimmy Laritz. We go crazy. Our, our play-by-play guy quit before the season. So I became the default play-by-play guy. Wow. So I'm in Nashua, New Hampshire, kicking off our season. I have no idea. We're on these Comrex things where you have to use a phone line to dial in to Seton Hall. I have no oh, idea. Yeah. I didn't know you needed a code to dial out. And so I'm trying to get on the air. <laughs> I'm learning all this stuff on the fly. Meanwhile, ESPN and the camera crew is, is down on the field filming you know, all these big leaguers that I have for the Newark Bears. A month later, our GM gets fired. So I become the GM. And so I was a GM play-by-play <laughs> guy. <laughs> and so it was it was a blast. We ended up getting to uh, the playoffs that year, lost in the finals. And then speaking of analytics, I wanted to get – I was tired of all the big, big leaguers on my team with all the headaches we had. And so <laughs> – I got rid of I got rid of every guy. I kept my catcher and my center fielder, Pito Ramirez and Joe Mathis, and I rebuilt my team and I focused on on base percentage. Lo and behold, on on base, I wanted guys. Look at you, yeah, on on base percentage. And I made a trade. I traded the one dog, Lance Johnson, because Butch Hobson was the manager in Nashville. And he loved LJ, and I said, I'll I'll trade you LJ. It just doesn't fit what I'm trying to do here. Profile. I want to get younger. Is what I told him. He goes, well, what do you want in return? I said, I want, I want Jimmy Hurst, uh, your right fielder. Jimmy was this dude who was 6'6 from Alabama. Dude, he's massive. massive. I played against Jimmy Hurst in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Can yeah. run like the wind, cannon for an arm, hits bombs, hits for average. They say, yeah, we'll take that deal. Jimmy comes on, sweetest dude in the world. I signed Danny Kleiber, and you may have know that name as well. Oh, I know that guy and, too. Uh, we end up winning the whole thing. Jimmy ends up being the triple crown winner for us. Oh, wow. And uh, I end up getting a job the following January with the Diamondbacks. And that, that started my my big league career. So I've, I've done a lot of different things. And then the, the apparel thing just started a couple of years ago. We just wanted to teach our kids kind of the entrepreneurial spirit of things. And we, you know, using Big Fly, my home run call as the, as the genesis for the company, you know, we just create unique graphics revolving around the, the home run call. And I ended up selling 80% of the company. Uh, a couple of months ago to uh, the ball nine guys, Chris Vitale and Rocco oh. Constantine. And for you. Uh, so they, they've taken a good chunk of it. And 
um, I've just kind of settled into to my role here with the Rough Riders. It's been it's been a whirlwind, man. But it's been crazy, but it's been fun at the same time and a great learning experience. I, I kind of said this before. It sounds a little patronizing, but I mean, you know, we talked about the mental toughness and how to become successful, and the fact, like you said, you didn't get to go to college, so you did the school of hard knocks or the school of yeah. life. But your your mental toughness, your ingenuity, and your kind of your drive. I mean, Blummer talked about your passion, all these things, but I mean, there it is. I mean, it now comes full circle. I mean, that's why you're successful. You could tell because you're just not going to give up and you see this, you know, you care so much about these things. That story's fantastic. I, I was going to say Jimmy Hurst. I can't remember Clyburn where I played against him, but Hurst ended up being on Michael Jordan's double A team in Birmingham playing yeah. for Tito, I think for Tito Francona. Yeah. So he was a, Big time prospect. Yeah, he was a big time prospect, but you you found him. You know, and I mean, here's the guy six foot six. Like, yeah, I mean, he was he was no uh, he was no small guy. I mean, I think people used to mistake him and Jordan. I mean, they were both big, tall dudes walking around. Yeah, it it was it was a lot of fun, and you know, I always just figured I just try to find a way. That's how I look at things. There's always there's always a way around it, and that's kind of what's helped me along the way. I'm like, look, I've experienced a ton of failure in my life, and I think you you cannot be successful until you've learned how to fail and how you bounce back from that failure. And I think because I've really sucked at a lot of things early on, I've become much better and more cognizant of my surroundings and and the things that I'm willing to try. And you know, I don't know, I don't know what the future holds. I just kind of just keep plugging along, I keep learning every day. I just try to absorb as much as possible. Dude, absolutely phenomenal. And I, I was actually going to ask you about the failure aspect of it. And I literally got chills when you, when you mentioned that. And it's something that I know that us being parents, uh, coaches of our kids, if you will, we, tr- we, we try and instill that. And maybe it's just because we played baseball and we're <laughs> masochists and we love the fact yeah. that we've tried so many times and failed so many times that we yeah. just keep getting back up and keep grinding. But you, uh, you nailed it with the, the idea of, of uh, the the failure part of it, and uh, if you got anything else, because I don't want to keep you too much longer, you're absolutely crushing it. But do uh, you got any parting words before we let you go off our podcast? Because everything you've given us has been absolute gold. I mean, I got paid to to talk for for 18 years, man. So I could I could fill a I could fill this you know, this podcast as much as you want. So, but I think I've I think I've shared pretty much everything that. I want to say at this time, <laughs> maybe there's a part you're two gonna, down the road. You're, you're going to take the fifth from this one. <laughs> there could be. Uh, I'm going to take the fifth moving forward. Well, I was going to say, you know what? You got to. I'm going to hold you to this because this is being recorded. So when you do get that GM job, I'm either going to ask you for a job or I'm going to ask you to come back on our podcast. Yeah, for Deal, sure. Blummer. I, I I'm not going to lie to you, man. <laughs> you, I had a list of people that I had two people that I was going to have join me as right hands. Uh, Allard Baird, the former GM of the Kansas City Royals, good call, and Don Wakamatsu, the current bench coach for the uh, Texas Rangers, whom I absolutely love, and I love both guys. They've been just great dudes. But uh, you, you were one of the dudes that I would have reached out to, uh, especially down down below uh, you know, from a from a player development standpoint, because I've always mm-hmm. always gravitated towards you. I love talking baseball with you, and you know your energy and, and the like is something that I've always admired, and it's something that. Uh, as God is my witness, you were one of the guys that I would have loved to have had with me. So yeah, you, you're you, you, and Tuttle, you can come along. You just you just bring the podcast. Hey, we got to uh, see. You we got to interview see. us every day. I told Blummer I'll be his bullpen coach. We'll see how it there goes, go. but I don't think That'll he'll work. leave for managing. Hey, um, you know Wakamatsu, I played for in the Diamondbacks organization. I played for the Diamondbacks for about four years. So um, 
very, I mean, I mean, we could just network all these guys together. He's a fantastic human being. So yeah, uh, I'm glad to be. I, I tell him all the time about, uh, dude, I, I grew up watching you at Arizona state. He loves that. Oh yeah. He loves that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, I love that we're all connected in some weird way, but, uh, we, you know, like I said, we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I will say, you know, good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. Um, you laid that out for us. I mean, you know, you can't get to the top of the mountain without having some failures and, uh, and some trials and errors, but, uh, but we're just going to keep plugging away. That's all we can do. That's all we can do. All right, Vic. I appreciate it, man. You be good. All the best to you and the family. And I look forward to catching up with you later. You got it, fellas. Take care. Thanks for having me on. And that was our interview with Vic Rojas. Uh, we really appreciate him coming on the Bleacher Blums podcast. Um, as Bl- Blummer mentioned at the outset, you can reach us at Real David Tuttle at Blummer27. We also have our own social media outlet everywhere, bleacherblums.com, bleacherblums this, at bleacherblums on Instagram, at bleacherblums on Twitter. I mean, we're all over the place. And thank you for listening to this podcast on Labor Day. Uh, we want to give a shout out to our frontline workers and our, uh, our military and fire and police and everybody else out there that uh, put their lives in harm's way for us and enable us to uh, enjoy the freedoms of America and uh, having a podcast where we get to speak our mind. Uh, not just on this day, but every day. Blummer, anything to finish up with? No, that's it. We're always greatly appreciative of everybody who is protecting our freedoms out here. We pray that uh, if you are going abroad, we are we are hopeful and uh, grateful for you and just wish all of the health and uh, success in, in what you're doing. And hopefully when you get back stateside, you come out to a ball game and enjoy that, or you just enjoy listening to this podcast as you're traveling around the world. We appreciate everybody out there who is providing the security and the safety and the health of us as we go throughout these days. We always appreciate that, but that's going to do it right here in the bleachers. And of course, at the end of every bleacher blums, we implore you to get after it. And most of all, believe it, believe it. I feel like I'm talking too much. Yeah. You're all right.